The first reading is taken from 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 16 to the end and it's found on page 1222 of the church bibles. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. And if you're able to do so, I invite you to stand while we share our gospel reading. Our gospel reading is uh, uh, from uh, Matthew, uh, chapter 17, verses 1 to 9. It's page 984 in our few Bibles. Uh, hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, glory to you, O Lord. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, led them up to a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just there, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the, gar- the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the Gospel of Christ. So loving God, thank you for the story of the transfiguration. Uh, in both Matthew's Gospel and this letter from Peter. And so we ask that you open our hearts uh, to see what it means to us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please do be seated. The familiar story of the transfiguration, Peter and James and John, the big three, Uh, go up the mountain with Jesus, and there Jesus is transformed before them, and they receive this prophetic vision that Jesus is the uniting of the law, symbolized by the presence of Moses, and the prophets, 
symbolized by the presence of Elijah. They are brought up a high mountain, it says. And I wonder if they thought, as Jesus did this, whether something was occurring. Or whether it was just another one of Jesus' walks to get away from the crowd. After all, Israel is surrounded by fairly high mountains. And even the desert can be on a mountain in that region. Something to think about as we enter the Lenten desert. So an ordinary day perhaps for them. They may even have forgotten the interaction they'd had six days before when the Pharisees had asked Jesus for a sign of who uh, he was, um, sorry, had asked Jesus for a sign and which then led to Jesus denouncing the yeast of the Pharisees and then Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus going on to talk about his death. That might seem a significant um Uh, link to us Um, because we know the way that it goes and as we journey into the Lenten season even our 21st century senses are heightened to the passion and the cross but at the time I imagine that there were these moments in Jesus' life with his disciples And then things had a more ordinary daily structure of teaching and healing, walking and eating and praying, the normal rabbinical ways. I don't imagine that they were thinking, hey, six days ago the Pharisees asked for a sign and Jesus was really mad with them about it. But do you think he's going to give us a sign anyway now? And yet... As they ascended the high mountain, I wonder in the back of their mind somewhere was an ancient memory stirring that God has a habit of showing up on mountains, that an invitation to go up the mountain is not to be taken lightly. Was there a translucent quality in the air as they walked? You may have had that experience when suddenly and a quite ordinary moment, a conversation, reading a book, gardening, watching a film, suddenly... Uh, seems to become filled with meaning. Everything becomes sharper for a moment. The colors brighten, your senses heighten, you sit up a bit straighter, you know that you need to pay closer attention. There is something in the air. The spirit is on the move. And then what? Did Jesus just suddenly sort of turn shiny? Was he near them? He'd just been walking with them. In all the icons of the transfiguration and the old paintings, 
Jesus is always a little way ahead, a little bit further up the mountain in a sort of spiky, uh, star-shaped uh, sort of aura that keeps him away from the disciples. But I don't know why he should have been. Why should it have been like that? The things of God happen in the midst of two or three gathered together. The ordinary and the extraordinary find themselves often in the same space. Sometimes, in fact, it's difficult to tell which thing is which, which the ordinary and which the extraordinary. After all, it seems a perfectly ordinary, normal, usual thing for God to show up on a mountain. The spirit is on the move. In your home, in your garden, in your school, in your office, on your walk, in your book or your film, in the ordinary places, the extraordinary is quite at home. Pay attention. And so Elijah and Moses show up. It says that they appeared to them talking with Jesus. I wonder what they were talking about. But it seems that the appearance was for the benefit of Peter, James and John. They appeared to them talking with Jesus. So that they would know that Jesus was part of the long story, the law and the prophets, the Torah, which was so important to them and their identity as the people of Israel. Jesus was the fulfillment of all these things. And then Peter starts talking about building tabernacles for them. Uh, But Jesus doesn't pay too much attention to him saying that, actually, just sort of ignores him. It's clearly not the important thing for that moment. And then a bright cloud descends. Uh, In the translation I was reading, it says, a bright cloud overshadowed them. I wonder if you've ever thought how strange this language is. There is light brightness, but it clouds their vision. It's bright, but it overshadows. In the reading from 2 Peter, it talks about a prophetic message being given as a lamp in a dark place. Have you ever wondered at how often God shows up in the dark places? That in fact light and dark, not fighting each other off, but that light only makes sense when it comes in the dark. We often see the transfiguration story as a story about a great light and shininess. But let's notice the dark in the story. It might be light to us, especially if you find yourself in the dark. Uh, Barbara Brown Taylor writes to us about darkness in her book, Learning to Walk in the Dark. And she reminds us that dark is as needful to us as human beings in our creatureliness. It 
It's necessary to have darkness as it is to have light. And that the Bible talks as much about the dark being a place of life as we might think it does, because we've got all those things programmed in our mind about the darkness being something to fear. So I'm going to read to you now. So this is from this book, Learning to Walk in the Dark by Barbara Brown Taylor. There are only about a hundred references to darkness in the Bible, but the verdict is unanimous, of course. Darkness is bad news. In the First Testament, light stands for life and darkness for death. When God is angry with people, they are plunged into darkness. Locusts darken the land. People grope in the dark without light. For the day of the Lord is darkness and not light. In the Second Testament, Light stands for knowledge and darkness for ignorance. If thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness, Matthew says in the King James Version. When the true light comes into the world, the world does not know him. Though he comes to those in darkness and the shadow of death, they love darkness more than light. On the day he dies, darkness descends on the land from noon until three. He has come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in him shall not remain in the darkness. But some people just cannot be helped. They are wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, reads Jude 13. Wandering stars for whom the deepest darkness has been reserved forever. Yet, even in the Bible, that is not the whole story about darkness. Anyone who knows the story of Abraham remembers the night God led him outside to look at the stars. The old man was in deep doubt about whether God's promise of children would ever come true. He and his wife Sarah had been waiting so long that hope was little more than a habit. All they knew was that God kept saying, soon, but soon never came. So when God said it the next time, do not be afraid, Abraham, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. Abraham decided to point out the obvious. You have given me no offspring, Abraham said bluntly, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. God did not argue with him. Instead, God told the old man to go outside and look up at the sky. Count the stars if you're able. God said to Abraham, for so shall your descendants be. It was not something that could have happened in the middle of the day. The night sky was a key player in Abraham's decision to trust God. Later, God would come to Abraham's grandson, Jacob, in the middle of the night. After he fled from the family he had betrayed in the worst kind of way, When Jacob could not run any longer, he lay down in the middle of nowhere and fell asleep. Dreaming one of those dreams that arrives more like a vision, he saw a ladder with its feet set on the earth and its top reaching toward heaven, with the bright angels of God climbing up and down on it. 
That was when God said more or less the same thing to Jacob that he had said to his grandfather, Abraham. Know that I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. It was not something that could have happened in the middle of the day. The night vision was a key player in Jacob's decision to believe God. Once you start noticing how many important things happen at night in the Bible, the list grows fast. Jacob wrestles an angel by a river all night long, surviving the match with a limp, a blessing and a new name. His son Joseph dreams such dreams at night that he catches a pharaoh's attention, graduating from the dungeon to the palace to become the royal interpreter of dreams. The exodus from Egypt happens at night. God parts the Red Sea at night. Manna falls from the sky in the wilderness at night. And that is just the beginning. And then uh, Barbara Brown Taylor goes on uh, as she describes her own experience of, of visiting a cave, a wild cave, one that's really dark and not like the ones that we visit that are all lit up and have handrails and all that kind of thing. Um, and she wants to experience this deep darkness. And as she's doing it, um, she gives us this challenge. Everyone who saw the risen Jesus saw him after. Whatever happened in the cave happened in the dark. As many years as I have been listening to Easter sermons, preacher here, I have never heard anyone talk about that part. Resurrection is always announced with Easter lilies, the sound of trumpets, bright streaming light. But it did not happen that way. If it it happened in a cave, it happened in complete silence, in absolute darkness, with the smell of damp stone and dug earth in the air. Sitting deep in the heart of the organ cave, I let this sink in. New life starts in the dark, whether it is a seed in the ground, a baby in the womb, or Jesus in the tomb. It starts in the dark. Resurrection happens in the dark. In the bright cloud, in the lamp, in the dark, the spirit is on the move. In 2 Peter, in that 2 Peter reading, it says, This is my son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice come from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic message more fully confirmed. You will do well to be attentive to this as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. First of all, you must understand this, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation Because no prophecy ever came by human will, but men and women, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. 
It is in the overshadowing of the bright cloud that the disciples hear God and are touched by Jesus. The bright cloud overshadows them and then they hear God and then Jesus touches them. In the dark place, the light shines. In the places where we are unsure and in doubt, where we feel ignorant and uncertain, all these words and feelings that we associate with having our vision clouded, in these places, we might just find that the Spirit is on the move. In these places, we might find ourselves being men and women, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. In the places where the ordinary and the extraordinary mix, where the light and the dark are both places where God shows up, may you find yourself paying attention to the Spirit. And may you hear from God and be touched by Jesus. Amen.